welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Good morning. Hey, that's pretty good. I'm so happy to see everybody this morning. It's a good-looking crowd. I have missed being with y'all on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, but I'm glad that we all get to be together Sunday mornings, and soon we'll get back to as normal as possible. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. If you'd like to turn there, we have been in a series called Fixer Upper. Now, Fixer Upper is kind of comparing the work that happens on a house when somebody takes an old, broken-down, wore-out house, and they come in and they put their love and their heart and their skills into it and they turn it into something amazing. They turn it into a new creation. We've been comparing that concept with what Jesus Christ does in us. When he comes into a broken down, worn out sinner and he makes us something special. He creates in us something new. Now you may have picked up on this. This is just really a creative way of working through something that we call the Roman Road. And the Roman Road is just a bunch of verses from Romans that teaches us how how, why, and what we get when we go to God and look for salvation. That's what we've been studying over. So in this series so far, we've talked about the concept of the worst house. If you are going to restore a house, you have to first analyze it and say, I know that there are things broken, there are things that are wrong with it that need to be fixed. The first step for us to come to Christ is the exact same thing. We have to be able to look in the mirror and look at ourselves and say, there is something within me that is broken, something that needs to be fixed, something that I need restored. We find the answer to what is that broken thing in Genesis chapter 5 when it tells us that Adam and Eve disobeyed God when they were tempted with becoming like God and deciding good and evil for themselves. In each of us, what is broken is that we are in competition with God for who is going to be in control of our lives and who is going to decide who is going to be the ultimate authority on right or wrong. Once we've addressed in ourselves that there are things that are broken, we go into demolition day. And if you've seen the show Fixer Upper, that is Chip Gaines' most favorite day. He's going to go in and he's going to tear out everything. He's going to wreak havoc on that house to take out the old, the ugly, and the broken so that he can replace it with something new. God does just the same thing in us. For us to come to Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to let him demolish this idea that we are God. We have to put ourselves in contrast with Jesus Christ, who is holy, who is perfect, and we have to say, you are God and I am am not. That is the next step. And after that, we have the reveal. And that's where we get to see this picture of a before and after. And on the show, if you watch it, there's this picture of this giant old ugly house as it started out. And they pull the picture away and they said, look at what has happened now. For Christians, there is a definite transformation in our hearts. We are a new, creature, a new creature and a new creation once Jesus Christ comes and does his work with us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I planned this out and when I started um, planning this fixer-upper, it was only supposed to go three weeks. And this is really exciting when this happens. When you have a plan of how you're going to go through things and God adds something to it. He says, wait, Brian, you, you missed something. So today we're going to go back and we're going to address something that we missed. And that just tells me that God's got something really special for us. It's the concept of this. What now? We have addressed ourselves that there's something wrong with us. We've let God demolish the idea that we are our own God, and we give yield to Him to be for Him to be the ultimate authority on right or wrong. He has transformed us, He's made us a new creature and a new creation. What now? 
Well, what, what happens after this? Is the, is the process over just because we have been transformed? Well, I think the answer is found in this. Is In the show, you'll hear this concept a lot called forever home. People will talk about this house and they'll say, I'm so excited that this is my forever home. See, the process of a fixer-upper is not just about getting the house to create something. It's about having the house afterwards. And when Jesus Christ comes into our life, when he transforms us, the process that he is putting us through is for the exact same purpose, is to have us afterwards, not just for the moment of transform, transfer, transformation. One of the problems that we struggle with with Christians is we go through the transformation. We legitimately come to know Jesus Christ, and then we wait our entire life to just make it to heaven. We, we think, I've got this part figured out, and the next step is I get to heaven. But the process is just beginning, not ending, once we've went through the transformation. If you look at a house that is tore down and refit or fixed up, it is restored, it goes through about a three-step process. Number one, all the changes are put in there purposely. Nobody goes into a fixer-upper project, tearing down walls, painting random things without having an exact plan for why they want that wall removed or why they want that room painted that color. And the reason that those things are done so, um, so purposefully is it meets the personal desires of the owner. The owner wants a bigger living room or the owner likes this color. And the reason that the carpenter spends so much time making sure that those details are perfect for the owner is because this house is for longevity. When Jesus Christ comes into your life and when he came into my life, he transforms us with a purpose to meet his own perfect and holy desires. And when he does that, we can be assured that it's not because he wants to cast us to the side and discard us or because he's done with us once we go through the transformation. It's for him to have us forever. So what we want to look at today is we want to look in the Bible for proof of his continual love and work in us. And I think we're going to find that in Romans chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to start in verse 32. We're going to read through the verse 34. Don't close your Bibles. We're going to come back to it. But listen to what it says here. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Is it God that justifieth? It is, I'm sorry, it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, and who also maketh intercession for us. See, what I see in this scripture is I see proofs of continued love of Christ. It's not about the process. It's not about the immediate transformation. It is a lifelong commitment from God to us and us to God. Uh, the first proof that we see in here, it just simply says, is that he freely gives us all things. Now, we need to be careful here because this has been misinterpreted for a long time. There has been this concept that if I give this to God, he's going to give me good things. If I give to the church monetarily, God is going to bless me monetarily. And there's a lot of people that um, they search for God and they pursue God, not because they want Jesus Christ, not because they want transformation, but because they think that that is the path to things. Now, that is not at all what this scripture means. I want you to know that God gives freely because he has a gracious heart and he loves to give. When you love someone, you love to give to them. Isn't Christmas time about the best time of the year? And there's not a one of us in here over the age of about 10 that looks more forward to getting the gifts than we do 
do to giving the gifts that we bought for somebody. We want to bring joy to somebody. And God looks at you and me the exact same way. He is continually giving to us, providing for us to give us joy, happiness, and excitement. It doesn't mean that we're going to be rich. It doesn't mean that we're going to win the lottery this week. But it means that God is continually looking out for us. And look, this is a proof because it says this. It's talking about the cost of our transformation is Jesus Christ. Now think about that. The process that we went through where we are the worst house, where we go through a demolition day and we experience a transformation, the cost of that was not cheap. The cost of that was the blood of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we need to continually think of when we look into the mirror and we assess who we are with Jesus Christ is what was the cost that was paid for us? The Bible here points to it, that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. Now listen, nobody hung Jesus Christ on that cross. It wasn't the soldiers who stood guard. It wasn't the man who swung the hammer and drove the nails into his hands. It wasn't the judge who convicted him, and it wasn't the crowds that cheered. The only thing powerful enough to hang Jesus Christ on that cross is his love for you and me and his need to get rid of our sin. If you want to know who hung Jesus Christ on that cross, there's a mirror out here in the lobby. You can go look in it. It's me, and it's you, because that's the only thing powerful enough to hold him there. And so the Bible goes on this way. When Paul's writing this, he says, if Jesus Christ will go through the cost of giving his life for you, what small things is he going to take away from you? What things is he going to withhold from us? God loves to give freely. He gave his son freely. And therefore, we can be assured that we don't have to worry about the small things. Secondly, it says this. It says, we can't be charged. Now, don't go get a speeding ticket and run down to the court and say, I belong to Jesus Christ. You can't charge me. That's not what this means. But listen, the ideal of charging is that you owe something to somebody. When we go to the store and we buy whatever we need, they're going to definitely say, you owe this because you got that. And with sin, there is a payment that is required. That, that we are charged for our sin. We are charged for the things that we do wrong. And because of that, we think we have to spend our whole lives figuring out how to pay that. But the Bible says this, because of the love of God, because of the love of Jesus Christ, we cannot be charged. There is no payment that is going to be demanded of us for our sin. You know why? Because that payment was already paid. It's already been taken care of if we've accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ. We, we don't have to worry about that. See, in heaven there is an ultimate judge. It is God the Father. He decides who owes what. And when we accept Jesus Christ, his son, the path that he made for us to owe nothing, he says, you don't owe a thing for your sin. It's been paid in full. And because of that, we can walk around assured that we are justified continually, that the final judge has had the say. Now, mankind and Satan, they want to continually try to charge you with things. Your sin is too great to be forgiven by God. That's what you might think or hear the voices say. You, you owe something because you're a horrible person. You, you, you've messed up too much this time. But the Bible says, who is going to charge you when God says you have been set free? Who could possibly overrule the ruling of God when he says you are justified. Now the reason we're justified is not because of anything we're done. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. 
We owe nothing because it's been paid for all. The third thing it says here is that Jesus intercedes for us. You know what intercedes means? It means he gets into our business. He gets in our way. He intervenes for our cause. And so when we mess up, when we have a sin, and it goes before the judge, and a charge is owed, it's this simple. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and he says, I've paid for that. This child belongs to me. They owe nothing. And this is a continual process of Jesus Christ sitting there and a continual picture of God's ongoing love that we are provided for again and again and again and again. Yet so many of us, so many Christians, we deal with this ongoing, nagging question. When will God give up on me? When is God done with me? When have I messed up too much and we hide from him in shame because we think at some point we're gonna do something and God will no longer freely give to us. We think at some point we're gonna do something and we will be charged for it when we stand in front of God. We think at some point we're gonna do something so big or do it so many times that Jesus will no longer intercede. He'll say, you know what, I'm done paying for that sin. And so many Christians don't walk around with the freedom that God intended for us to have because we deal with this nagging question, what if I mess up? When is God going to walk away? And I know it's been a question for thousands of years because it was recorded in God's Bible, the answer, because God knew it was something that we would struggle with. God knew it was something Satan would tempt us with, and God knew it was something that we would need to be reminded of again and again and again. And so as if it's not enough to assure us that God freely gives to us, that nobody can charge us because we've been justified and that Jesus intercedes for us, this scripture continues. Let's, let's read verses 35 through 38. It says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor debt, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you hear what that said? He asked this question, and it's a question that is on so many people's minds so much. What can separate me from the love of God? And then he goes through a list of things, and at the end of it he says, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that will pull us away from the love that has caused Jesus Christ to come in and build and change, restore, and renew us. And so we ask this question, what about tribulation? What about a time of trouble or sorrow? A time when most people, even our closest friends and our family members, they might run away from us? Is, is that enough to get God away from us when we undergo hardships? Are we alone in our hardships? But in the moment of tribulation, in the moment of trouble, in the moment of suffering, when everybody else may run away, God stands beside us because we are not separated from the love of God. Well, what about if we're in distress? What if we have some extreme sorrow, if we're heartbroken, if we have anxiety and, and we're just impossible to be around? We seem so unlovable and we feel so broken. We, f we feel like everybody would want to avoid us. But, but while others may avoid us, God's love is there to comfort us. 
Because even in distress and heartbreak and anxiety, we are not separated from the love of God. Well, surely there's something on this list that must separate us. What if we're hungry? Think about being hungry. We're unable to provide for even our most basic of needs. We are needy. We're going to have to go to someone and ask for something. Surely that's enough to get God to walk away from us. He, he, he wouldn't want us if we aren't even able to provide for our most basic needs. But in a time when we have nothing to offer, God's love is so amazing that he comes to provide for us in that moment because we are not separated from the love of God. Oh, well, what about this one? This one's my favorite. What if... <laughs> What if we're naked? What about our nakedness and our shame? If, if we have no possessions, we're shameful in appearance, you can see all of us, whether that's physically or spiritually, every shameful part of us is exposed, and that's what many of us are scared of. What if God sees the bad? What if he sees the dark that I hide? What, what if he knows what I'm doing that nobody else knows in my life? Will, will he just... Surely he would give up then if he knew how horrible that one sin that I deal with is or that, that one insecurity I have. Surely that would make me unlovable to God. But in a moment of great vulnerability, he doesn't just love us, but he provides for us covering. He, he takes care of us and he covers us with his own glory. What about peril? What, what about danger? Surely if we're in danger, nobody would risk their own life to come rescue us from danger. <laughs> the answer to that one's pretty simple. He, he already has. He, he put himself in danger to come save us out of the danger that we created. Because even in peril, even in nakedness, we are not separated from the love of God. But what about this one? What about the sword? What about when following Christ causes us to fall into hardship? What, what about if there is persecution that arises us? Y'all, we live in a very special moment in time, in a very special area of time, where we can do this without threat of death. Because that is not the history of God's people. For, for the entire history of God's people for the last 2,000 years, people have been willing to sacrifice their life for this message. We don't have to do that yet, or not here anyway. But in that moment, when God, when our love for God causes us to fall into danger, it causes us to fall into persecution, and perhaps even takes our life, surely if God would let us suffer and die, surely if God would let us be persecution, that, that means that we have been separated from the love of God. But it's not true. Even in that moment, he is there with us. Even, even if we have to suffer for his name and his cause. See, all of these things are undesirable states of the human condition. Nobody wants to be around someone who is always in trouble, who is always anxious and sorrowful and brokenhearted. Nobody wants to love someone who is hungry and naked, and nobody wants to rescue those who have got themselves into danger. And all of these times we think maybe this is what will cause God to abandon me. And Paul asked this question in writing this. He says, would God abandon us in these? Could they remove us from God's love? And he follows it up in the very next verse. He says no. And then he adds to it, in fact, we become more than conquerors through God's love in all of these situations. See, each of these undesirable states of the human condition they can be physical, but they can also be spiritual. 
And, and Paul tells us this, that in these moments, we actually grow stronger from God's love, not weaker. It is in the hardest times of our life when we will experience God's love the most. I'm not saying he loves us more in those moments. It's when we experience it the most. God's love is transformational even in the hardships. Well, back through the list. What about tribulation? How could we experience God's love in tribulation? When, when, we, when we have problems in our life. Well, think back in your life with Jesus Christ. What is the time when you grew closest to him? What is the time when he changed you the most? I guarantee you it wasn't during the good times. It wasn't at the moment when everything was going well. Your faith grew in a moment of tribulation. Your faith grew during hardship. Your faith grew during hurt. Well, what about when we're in distress and we're brokenhearted, we're sorrowful, we carry anxiety and hurt with us? Does that separate us? And of course not. It draws us closer to God because in a moment when we are brokenhearted, the comfort of God comes in and we learn to love and trust Him more and it pulls us closer to a holy God. What about when we're hungry, when we can't provide for our own needs, when we can't provide for ourselves? How could that possibly grow us from God? You see, when you're spiritually hungry, you learn to seek after God other than the things of this life, the things in this world. And so if we're physically hungry, spiritually hungry, this teaches us to hunger for God, to hunger for his provision. <laughs> what about in our nakedness? What about when God can see every bad detail of us? There's no hiding it. There's no covering it. He knows about it and he knows about us. Surely, surely there's no way we can grow in that. See, the Bible talks a lot about this. See, God covers our nakedness and he covers our problems and he covers our imperfection. And the Bible calls it this. We will be clothed in white raiment, white robes, if you will. See, even, even when we are weak, God has a plan for us. God has strength that he offers us. What about when we're in peril? Well, when we're in danger. The Bible is the greatest rescue story ever. Because each of us was born in a problem that we cannot get out of. Each of us was born in a danger that we can't save ourselves for. In the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1 through the end of Revelation, it tells the story of a Savior who came not to lord over us, not, not to make us feel guilty for our sin, but to rescue you, us from danger. And even in the moment of death, it's something that we fear all of our lives, and humans spend billions of dollars a year trying to avoid the moment of death. But for a follower of Christ, the moment we leave this body is the best moment of our existence to that point. Because the second that we are gone from this earth, we find ourselves in our new forever home, standing next to a Savior who loves us. See, it doesn't matter what the world throws at us. It doesn't matter what weaknesses we have. God's love actually strengthens us during that time. After Paul goes through this, he, he, he writes all this out and he says this, I am persuaded, I am convinced, I am positive because of what I know about God's love, I am 100% sure that there is nothing that will separate me from the love of God. There's not a single thing. And he goes through another list. After all this, I'm convinced that neither life nor death, uh, angels or powers or principalities, nor uh, the present or the future, height or death, none of these things will separate me from the love of God. If you look at that list, it really talks about four things. Not our condition, 
No spiritual power, no amount of time, and no distance will pull you away from the love of God. Nothing will stand in that way. Now think about the freedom that we have if we live that from day to day. If we live with the mindset that the love of God will never abandon us. That the most important thing that happened to us in our entire life is never going to go away. That God's work is done in us for, well, forever. From the moment we come to Him, we will never be without Him again. In this life, He never leaves us. He's with us in every second. And in the next life, we will be with Him for every second. One of the things that we fear, one of the things that we miss, is the freedom God intended for us to have. See, God did not intend for us to sit in a church and act holy and hide our sin. God did not intend for us to walk around and be scared of the world around us. God did not intend for us to try to do our best and hope that we make it to heaven. God intended it for us to have a understanding of his love in the worst of times. Because that's when we need it the most. We need him when we are weak. Not when we are strong. Well, we need him when we're strong, but we need him more when we're weak. And God wants us to walk in this freedom that we are consumed by God's love. In just a few minutes, we're going to walk out those doors and we're going to go into a dark world. And God has called us to be the light in a dark world. See, we're not just going out there just to live until we can come back and gather again together. God said, in a dark world, I want you to shine brightly. I want you to be a picture of what life with me is like and I want you to tell the world about me. And we can't do that if we walk around fearful that we'll lose God. I can't tell you about the love of God if I think in my own life that God is going to abandon me. And so this morning, I hope that we leave, Brother Danny, I hope that we leave with this understanding and this idea that God is with us continually, that we walk out of here with a heart full of joy, excitement in our eyes, that no matter what we go through, the love of God will not abandon us. Let me ask you this question as we we come to our invitation time. This is when we just want to reflect on what we've learned. Do you truly walk around in that freedom? Or is that something that maybe you've got a little fear about? Now would be a time to just pray to God and ask Him to, to reveal that to you, to give you that comfort. Now would be a time, if you've never experienced that freedom, to come let me tell you how to get it.